The following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Welcome. Good to see you folks. Okay, let's turn our Bibles to 2 Kings 21. We have our scripture reading here, 2 Kings 21. Unfortunately, this is uh, this part of it is not so good with Manasseh, but we're reading it. So, Second Kings 21. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed. Why did he do that? (laughs) You know, just frustrating. He raised up altars for Baal and made a wooden image as Ahab king of Israel had done. And he worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. He also built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. Also he made his son pass through the fire, practiced soothsaying, used witchcraft, and consulted spiritists and mediums. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. He even set a carved image of Asherah that he had made in the house of which the Lord had said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not make the feet of Israel wander anymore from the land which I gave their fathers. Only if they are careful to do according to all that I have commanded them, according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they paid no attention. Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. And the Lord spoke by His servants the prophets, saying, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has done these abominations, he has acted more wickedly than all the Amorites who were before him, and has also made Judah sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such calamity upon Jerusalem and Judah that whoever hears of it, both his ears will tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab. I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. So I will forsake the remnant of my inheritance and deliver them into the hand of their enemies. And they shall become victims of plunder to all their enemies because they have done evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came up out of Egypt even to this day. Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another besides his sin by which he made Judah sin in doing evil in the sight of the Lord. I pause and just, you might wonder how many of those prophets that brought that message of judgment from God did Manasseh tolerate? Probably not too many. Yeah, terrible time of persecution for the people of God. Verse 17, now the rest of the acts of Manasseh, all that he did and the sin that he committed, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? 
So Manasseh rested with his fathers and was buried in the garden of his own house in the garden of Uzzah. Then his son Ammon reigned in his place. Ammon was 22 years old when he became king and he reigned two years in Jerusalem. <clears throat> Excuse me, in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Meshulameth, the daughter of Heruz of Jatba. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord as his father Manasseh had done. So he walked in all the ways that his father had walked and he served the idols that his father had served and worshipped them. He forsook the Lord God of his fathers and did not walk in the way of the Lord. Then the servants of Ammon conspired against him and killed the king in his own house. But the people of the land executed all those who had conspired against King Ammon. Then the people of the land made his son Josiah king in his place. Now the rest of the acts of Ammon which he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And he was buried in his tomb in the garden of Uzzah. Then Josiah his son reigned in his place. Let me just read the next two verses of the the next chapter. Josiah was eight years old when he became king and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidah, the daughter of Adiah of Boscath. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in all the ways of his father David. And he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. What a relief after 57 years to Manasseh and his, next, his son reigning in evil way over the people of Israel. All right. That brings us to our message this evening. So, I don't have a single text that we're going to visit this evening, but I received a question uh, on the structure of the Millennial Kingdom, and I thought that I would just uh, answer that with a little uh, sermon and some notes that I have written on the subject. And so, I'll, I'll just do that, and I hope that will be helpful to you. We can make it a little interactive if you want. Uh, it's uh, fine by me. But uh, the question had to do with the, the, what's the who are, who, who's going to be in this kingdom and what's it going to look like and what's life going to be like? So I thought I would give a little bit of an answer to that this evening under two, two kind of headings. One would be the structure of the kingdom and then the society of the kingdom or the, the constituents, if you will, the people who will be involved. So remember... We await the rapture of the church after which will be the tribulation on the earth. And then the Lord Jesus will return to the earth and establish His kingdom. That will carry on, as Revelation 20 tells us, for a thousand years. It's during that period of a thousand years, which is at least seven years future from now, if we understand the timeline correctly, if the rapture were to occur today or tomorrow. Uh, So that's the time period we're looking at. Just before the... Great white throne judgment and then the eternal state in Revelation 21 and 22 there. So this is the time period we're talking about. It's the intermediate age between this age and the age of eternity. So, the kingdom of God in the millennium, this thousand year period of time, and frankly in the eternal state as well, will be structured as a human society with divine and human rule, divine and human government, if you will. There will be leaders and followers. There will be people involved in all kinds of things. There will be physical activities going on. There will be nations. There will be uh, elements of this kingdom 
just focusing on the millennial kingdom itself, will include the spiritual aspects, political or governmental aspects, uh, what um, McLean calls ecclesiastical aspects, and I'm going to go through these all in just a moment, uh, economic, physical, and moral elements to this kingdom. Okay, We can see these elements are clearly laid out in the Bible. Uh, and actually, <clears throat> one of the interesting things is you can look and see those elements of the millennial kingdom or the future kingdom or the messianic kingdom or the mediatorial kingdom, however you want to call it. You can see those features predicted in the Old Testament and uh, described as to how they will be fulfilled. You can see them predicted and mentioned in the Gospels and in the New Testament. And then you can see some of them also in the book of Revelation, the same characteristics. And the reason I think this is important is that we recognize that what we're headed to in this kingdom is a real thing. This is not imaginary. It's not ghostly. It's not, you know, the common idea of, you know, angels and harps and heaven and clouds and floating over streets of gold and all of that sort of thing. As I said before, this is a real, live society. I mean, as you know, as real as this is, that will be. We've been infected by the idea that matter is somehow bad and once we get released from this realm of material we'll be able to exist in the realm of the pure spiritual and we'll be fine everything will be good uh, that's not at all the case god has not designed the future to look like that at all so the kingdom will be a spiritual kingdom now i say that based on what i just said you might say well what does that mean because you have in your idea the 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 mindset that spiritual has to do with non-material things. When something is spiritual, that's not the opposite of physical. If anything, it'd be the opposite of sinful, not, not, not material or physical. Spiritual has to do with righteousness and a relationship with God through salvation. That's what spiritual means. It means, you could say, too, having to do with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit can sanctify material, physical things just as well as he can the immaterial part of you. So, uh, for example, this kingdom is spiritual. Isaiah 61.10 says, uh, He has covered me with the robes of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and a bride, <clears throat> as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its bud, as the garden causes things which are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all nations. So there's a spiritual aspect of this kingdom that's predicted there. <clears throat> you also have passages such as Zechariah chapter 9, verse number 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having what? A spiritual thing, salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey and so on. Okay, Zechariah 12.10. Now, of course, we know part of that was fulfilled when the king came into Jerusalem, but uh, it's still, he has salvation with him. So when he is ruling over his kingdom, you can, you can bet that there will be salvation aplenty in that place. Zechariah 12.10 says this, 
I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. That sounds spiritual, doesn't it? Then they will look upon uh, they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. And then finally, one other reference under this heading of spiritual, the spiritual kind of characteristic of this coming kingdom is in Jeremiah 23. Just enjoy these verses. I, I hope you will as we read them. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. Remember that verse? Yeah, that's a great, a great word. The Lord our righteousness. So this kingdom has a spiritual aspect to it. It also has a governmental or political aspect. Yes, uh, there will be some kind of politics in the kingdom. It will be entirely different than our kind of politics because the king will be the man, Christ Jesus, the God-man. And uh, his co-rulers will be of a certain sort that we'll talk about in just a moment. The function of rule and administration is what we're talking about when we talk about this political aspect. So you think of national governments now. There will be national governments then. Okay, They will be much better than they are now, but there will be nations. How do we know that this is going to be the case? Well, the Bible tells us. Think of Matthew 25. The Lord's going to set up His throne in Jerusalem and gather the nations before Him and He's going to judge them. Remember the sheep and the goats? That's one passage by which we know. There's another one. It's in Psalm 110, one of the most commonly quoted in the New Testament of the Psalms. We're familiar with from Hebrews verse number 4 where the Lord has sworn and will not relent, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. That actually speaks to the next point which is there's an ecclesiastical aspect to the kingdom. When we say ecclesiastical, we mean like a churchly kind of thing, a, a worship situation there. Okay, It's not technically uh, the church, but we'll just call it churchy, like religious services. Okay, But we're still on this heading of political and governmental. And it says in Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. In the beauty of holiness from the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. So he's talking about ruling over the nations. Okay, That's the political and governmental function that is present during the kingdom. Two more texts here. and uh, They're back in Isaiah. Lots of these are in Isaiah. Uh, I think Isaiah is one of the underappreciated books of the Bible as far as its expressions about what's going to happen in the future. Uh, Isaiah 60, verse 5, and perhaps one of the reasons why people reading their New Testament don't understand the nature of the kingdom because they don't understand what's been predicted to come in that kingdom. Isaiah 60, uh, let's see, in verse number 5, Then you shall see and become radiant, and your heart shall swell with joy, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you, the wealth of the Gentiles shall come to you. To you. This is to God's people, to 
the nation Israel. Verse number 11 in the same chapter in Isaiah 60. Therefore, your gates shall be open continually. They shall not be shut day or night that men may bring to you the wealth of the Gentiles. That's an interesting thing. The Gentiles, the nations will bring somehow tribute to the people in Jerusalem. That may be uh, tax money. You know what I mean? Support for the international government that will be brought in by the people. So, the structure of the millennial kingdom. First of all, it's spiritual. It has to do with righteousness and salvation. Second of all, it's got a political or governmental aspect to it. There will be nations. There will be govern, governance. There will be people. You have a question. Uh, so I don't know that I can give a fully satisfactory answer to your question, John. So John's question is, how autonomous are the national governments? Uh, obviously, they are not autonomous enough to be able to say, we're not paying taxes to the international government. It's they're bringing their tribute to Jerusalem. Uh, they will be required, uh, according to uh, Zechariah uh, 14, to bring their worship to Jerusalem. Uh, and the feature that I haven't called out yet is the, the nature of the rulers of those nations. I believe, I believe it has to um, do with uh, resurrected saints, glorified people who will be governors of those nations. So whatever level of autonomy those nations have, they, it will be exercised completely appropriately under the head of the king. Now, how does that work at the end? I'm not exactly sure with the rebellion of Satan. Remember, we looked at at the end, uh, distinct, distinguished from Armageddon before the, trip, the, uh, the millennial kingdom, this dealing with afterwards. So it's not, that part's not exactly clear to me. I suppose um, that's okay. We'll figure it out. But it is somewhat mysterious how, well, and by the way, if Satan is bound and is not able to do his terrible deeds to the nations, then that will tend to bring the nations under into line, if you will. They'll be more likely to, to do what is right. But at the same time, there is the word that the Lord Jesus will rule with what instrument? A rod of iron. Now, that doesn't sound pleasant when you get whacked with that thing. And I think that's it does refer to the the utter power that he will reign. And so it will be, if, if nothing else, the peoples of the nations will be compelled to live properly, at least externally. You know what I'm saying? They will not be lawless, outwardly, riotous, and, and all that sort of thing. So, best answer to your question. Not exactly sure, but because of the nature of the rulers and the nature of the rule of the Lord Jesus, they will be somehow brought into conformity, at least externally, although we know that the heart of man, naturally born, is unchanged, and there will be some who chafe very much under that rule. There will be the undercurrent of people who want to replace the, the government, just like there are today. They want to cause an up, 
upheaval and a, and a revolt even in our own land and bring in a communist government, for example, that kind of thing will be an undercurrent that will be dealt with by the, by the Lord and by His people who will rule properly. Okay? Yes. If you remember, and we all do, when the night came that they were coming uh, at the behest of Judas and the uh, Pharisees to arrest Christ, right? He simply said, "I am he." Yeah. Whom are you seeking? Jesus of Nazareth. I am he. Yeah. They all fell backwards. Using that power, he was restraining himself. Of course. That power will not be restrained. Correct. That's right. So that's an example of how the nations will be encouraged. Encouraged. <laughs> encouraged to cooperate. So uh, you couldn't hear that if you were online, but um, Thurman was saying that uh, the, the, an example of the rule of Christ we see in the Garden of Gethsemane where he spoke and the, the uh, authorities just fell backwards. They could not stand before the power of his word. And that's what happens when the Lord returns with uh, the Antichrist. He will slay him with, he said, with, his, with the breath of his mouth, but is really with his word. He just speaks and, and uh, it will be taken care of. Yes. <clears throat> mm-hmm. That's right. Yes. That's right. So the rod of iron is is um, used by an arm, not a flesh, but the arm of the Lord by a very strong arm. So, so there is a governmental aspect that we see listed in several scriptures. Just like there's a spiritual aspect, there's also this ecclesiastical aspect. That is, that in the kingdom there will be a religious. Religious, okay, you understand I'm using it loosely, a, a, a service, a kind of worship set up. And uh, for that, we've already looked at Psalm 110.4 that, that the Lord is a uh, priest according to the order of Melchizedek. See, he's, he's king and priest. And of course, prophet all rolled up into one. So, he holds a very unique position which could not be held by a mere human because when you concentrate all of that power... And, and um, into one person, you have an extremely dangerous situation. That's what the Antichrist tries to do, right? He tries to rule, and he tries to rule the roost religiously so that he gets worship. And that's what, you know, uh, pompous kings throughout world history do, right? They demand worship. Caesars, pharaohs, dictators today, uh, the, uh, the cult of personality of that dictator, of the, the North Korean leader or whatever. Just, you know, he has to be sycophantically followed. Otherwise, you know, he gets, uh, uh, what's, what's the word? Um, you know, he's paranoid. He thinks everybody's going to get him unless they're out there praising him. And it's all fake and it's, it's dumb, but that's how it is. But anyway, uh, Zechariah 6 is another portion of Scripture that... Uh, we can just allude to quickly Zechariah 6, um, 12 and 13. 
Behold, the man whose name is the branch, from his place he shall branch out and he shall build the temple of the Lord. What is the temple if not a religious thing? Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear the glory and shall sit and rule on his throne. There it is. He's a rule and he's in the temple. He shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. There is that connected or, or unified role of priest and king in, uh, in the one person of the Lord Jesus. And we remember from Ezekiel 40 to 48, as incredible as this sounds to some ears, that there is a sacrificial system that is renewed and the nations are involved in that sacrificial system somehow. And it doesn't have to do with salvation. <clears throat> That's dealt with through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But there is a way in which individuals and the nations must do homage Open homage, worship to the Lord God and to His Christ. That's, that's something that just blows our mind. We don't quite understand that, I think, because we didn't grow up under the Mosaic Law. Those people understood that there has to be some way in which God is openly worshipped. And so there is a religious or ecclesiastical function in this kingdom. Okay, So we're talking about the structural elements of the kingdom. It's spiritual, it's political, it's ecclesiastical. It's also economic. That's number four, structural element of the kingdom. It's, this is a real kingdom. Just remember, just like I said, as real as this, the wood on this pulpit and the chairs upon which you're sitting, it's a real kingdom. It's got a real king and real people and real nations and, and all of that. And it has economics. What does that mean? It's going to have money, it's going to have trade, it's going to have commerce, interchange goods and services moving back and forth. It's going to have agriculture. Deuteronomy 15, 6. Deuteronomy 15 and verse 6. For the Lord your God will bless you just as He promised you. You shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. You shall reign over many nations, but they shall not reign over you. Same in Deuteronomy 28, verse number 12, where we'll be next week reading. The Lord will open to you His good treasure, the heavens, to give the rain to your land in its season and to bless all the work of your hand. You shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. And the Lord will make you the head and what? Not the tail. You shall be above only and not beneath. If you heed the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and you are careful to observe them. Now, I know I'm drawing these from the Mosaic Covenant, but those are actually going to be fulfilled in the, under the terms of the New Covenant. By the way, I haven't even touched the New Covenant texts, have I? I mean, I have some, but not directly. You look at uh, Jeremiah, which talks about the New Covenant and how the people are going to know God and the Spirit of God is going to indwell them and the law will be written in their hearts. That's a spiritual aspect of this kingdom. It's predicted. Listen, one of the most distressing things to me with regard to interpretation of the Bible is when somebody says, oh, that stuff's not going to happen. Of course it's going to happen. It has to happen. If God's faithful to His promises, and He is, then it will indeed occur. So, those blessings we could just add to our list here, and I might do that in the next edition of these notes. 
So we have spiritual aspects, a political element to this kingdom, an ecclesiastical element, an economic element. Um, where else could I go for an economic element? There's one in uh, Amos uh, chapter 9. Amos 9 says, And that day I will raise up the tabernacle of David which has fallen down and repair its damages, raise up its ruins, rebuild it as in the days of old. This is the house of, of uh, David, the rule, the dynasty. And uh, the, the Gentiles will, will be involved in this. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed. The mountains shall drip with sweet wine and the hills will flow with it. There's an economic aspect. This is agricultural here specifically. The earth will give forth such abundant fruitfulness that you, your eyes will pop out of your skull because you won't be able to believe the amount of grapes, the amount of wheat, the amount of anything that comes. And the reapers will be so overwhelmed with work that the guys coming behind them to plow it under to plant the next season's seed will say, look, buddy, get out of the way. We've got to make way for the new stuff. And it will just have to be, I guess, plowed under or they'll have to hurry up and finish their harvest time. Economic blessing during this time. And then... There's what is called the physical element, physical element of this kingdom, having to do with material things. We mentioned agriculture already, technology, uh, etc. And I have a list of six things having to do with water, Isaiah 30, climate, also, let's just turn to Isaiah 30 because there's a couple things there in that uh, general vicinity of Isaiah again. <laughs> Isaiah 30 and verse number 25. There will be on every high mountain, on every high hill, rivers and streams of waters. In the days of the great slaughter when the towers fall, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be sevenfold as the light of seven days. In the day that the Lord binds up the bruise of His people and heals the stroke of their wound. Chapter 32 and verse number 15 says about the fruitfulness of that time until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field and the fruitful field is counted as a forest. The need for pruning, for harvesting, for management will be tremendous because the earth will give forth. Can you just imagine if the climate was perfect? If it were perfect, should I, should I say? Yes, sir. Uh, or so uh, the Thurman is saying is the second law suspended? It's uh, probably not exactly because there still will be death. But so overwhelmed, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems to be overcome or slowed down somehow. That's right. Uh, that We don't know exactly how that will look in terms of uh, physics class, but uh, we'll, we'll take it. Uh, I mean, imagine if our climate were... I'm just thinking about the garden that John planted and harvested this year. If, if the climate were perfect, 
and John did not have to water at all, but they received the right amount of rain every night. The temperature was perfect every day. The amount of sun was perfect. The nutrients in the soil were perfect. (laughs) The rabbit hunters were perfect. (laughs) The fence was strong enough to keep the rabbits and the deer out, and the squirrels, by the way. Just imagine, God could do that. In fact, He will bring about that kind of fruitfulness. It's amazing what what could what could occur the harvest could easily be doubled tripled quadrupled perhaps from what it is yes there is <laughs> there's no there's no worry even with 7 billion people on the planet god can feed every single soul and uh, he could do it for twice as many people without a difficulty yes so there's a physical aspect there's also harmony in the animal kingdom the lion and the lamb will become friendly toward one another. Okay, Isaiah 11, verse number 7. If you want an encouraging passage, just read that Isaiah 11 passage sometime. Uh, verse 6, the wolf shall also dwell with the lamb. Boy, that doesn't happen today, does it? The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together. The young child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. I wonder if you saw the little short video of a fellow who was sitting on the on a kind of a bluffs overlooking a large ocean scene and it's a very windy day and he's sitting there in his lawn chair and up next to him ambles a large brown bear. And the bear is just looking around and smelling the fresh ocean scents it looks like and then decides to just plop down and sit there and look around a little bit and then uh, he gets a little more friendly with the guy who's sitting on the bear's right, kind of looks at him, and the guy says, hey, uh, leave. You know, And I don't know why the guy didn't flee, but he didn't. And uh, the bear gets up and walks away. It will be like that, only better here. The cow, what's that? Yes, it was real. I'm not joking. Well, it could have been, fo- I mean, what are they doing? I don't know. It could have been a. It could have been like those, you know, right? It could have been like a CGI or whatever, you know, like those dinosaur movies. They have all these realistic-looking dinosaurs. Yeah, standing between him and the bear, right? <laughs> well, anyway, that's kind of how it uh, how it will be. So, animal harmony, physical health, physical health. Isaiah 33, verse number uh, 24. And the inhabitant will not say, I am sick. The people who dwell in it will be forgiven their iniquity. Do you understand what it was like to live in first century Israel when Jesus came on the scene after His baptism? The place was just normally going along. There was people who were demon-possessed. There were people who were ill. People who were lame. People who couldn't see people who had maladies that, you know, some of which we might be able to fix today with medical technology, others which we can't. And Jesus came and basically wiped it out. All medical problems, not all, but most of them, just wiped out. Anybody who heard of who Jesus was and where He was, they heard He came into the city and they would send somebody to Him, come and heal my, my servant, my daughter, my son, raise this one from the dead. The, 
the widow in the city of Nain and Lazarus, his sisters are uh, sent for him and, and all of this. Just, it's unbelievable, but it's believable. <laughs> the Lord wiped it out. And that was just a preview of coming attractions. The inhabitant will, will not say, I'm sick. Because if worse comes to worse, he'll be able to go to be healed if he has faith in the Lord. Now, it may be also, we, we don't know, I don't know this for sure, but I like to think that the level of technological advancement in human culture will be so vast, even compared to what it is now. You know, you think now we've, we've got a lot of technology, you know, except we can't come up very quickly with a vaccine for a terrible virus. And, uh, you know, we have all this cool computer technology and everything and artificial intelligence and all that. Nothing compared to then, I think. The uh, technology for travel and energy and all that will be greatly advanced under the heading of the physical elements of the kingdom. And then in Psalm 91, I think there's a little indication here as well of physical protection during the kingdom. Physical protection. Psalm 91 and verse number 10. No evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling. Why? Because He will give His angels charge over you, lest you dash in their hands, they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. You shall tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent, you shall trample under foot. The physical aspects of the kingdom. And then finally, the moral element of this kingdom. We're just looking at the structure of this kingdom now. The moral element of it. As an outgrowth of the spiritual that we've looked at before, and the governmental and the ecclesiastical, the kingdom will be a place of high individual and societal morals. For example, abortion will not be legal. Many of the other vices that are in vogue today will not be permitted I'm thinking of the portion of Scripture in Matthew chapter 5 through 7 we call the Sermon on the Mount. Okay? Things that are just common today will be outlawed. They will not occur. And the morality that the Lord calls for there in Matthew 5 to 7 will be the code of conduct for the day. What do those things include? Teachings about adultery. Teachings about prayer, teachings about giving, fasting, um, all kinds of teachings about righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, he says in Matthew chapter 5. People uh, praying, seeking, asking, knocking, walking the narrow way, laying up treasures in heaven, watching the lamp of their body which is the eye, going the second mile with their neighbor, uh, all kinds of things will be prevalent. Believers being salt and light, just amazing kinds of things. The moral aspect of the kingdom. Those things that we long for today will be in fact in place then in large measure. And if there is a breakdown, there will be enforcement of that, against that breakdown. Now, this kingdom, 
this millennial kingdom of which we speak, with all these elements to it, is a reflection or a shadow of the eternal state. Okay, so it is God's moving history to the historical climax of this kingdom. It, however, is only a shadow of what will come in the heavenly state when there are there, there are no sinners left in that kingdom. There's no no Satan. He's he's in in the lake of fire and all of that stuff. No no demonic activity. No sinful things existing in that eternal state. And in fact, eternity itself, although you might not have thought about this, will be another, actually, it will be like this society we've talked about here, only better. For example, it says in Revelation 21, verse 24, that heaven will have nations in it. And they will bring their glory into the new uh, a heavenly Jerusalem. There will be trees there, like the tree of life that gives its fruit every month. There will be those who serve God, Revelation 21.3. His servants will serve Him. There will be a reigning function in 21 verse 5 in Revelation. There will be a king and a rule of those, of those people that are in that place. In other words, it will be a full-bore society. Not just a flat, you know, play a system or, or place where, you know, I don't know how you think of it or how it's been taught, but it's just kind of like, it's kind of vague. It's kind of uh, just, you know, we think, well, we're going to die and we're going to go there. And that's, then we stop. It's like, okay, that's perfect. There's no sin and crying there. It's wonderful. But it's an actual place where we will live. What are you going to do all that? You're going to live there. You're going to serve God there. You're going to serve one another there. It's going to be a perfect society. How's that going to look? It's almost impossible for us to even contemplate what does a perfect society look like? It's not exactly like what we experience today. So, so there, that's a, it's a lesser reflection or a shadow, this, this millennial kingdom of the eternal kingdom. But who are the constituents in this kingdom? Well, let's go to Hebrews. Hebrews 12. Now, I think Hebrews 12 is a reference to the heavenly society and the heavenly Jerusalem in the eternal state. However, because there is this kind of reflection or shadow relationship of the two things, the millennial kingdom being an expression, uh, earthly expression of this eternal kingdom, I think we can draw something interesting from this text. Hebrews 12, 22. And 23. Contrasting with Israel, who came to the mountain in Sinai that was a terrifying sight, the Bible says in Hebrews 12:22, "But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God." Okay, speaking of the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels. To the gen- now notice the list here. To the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. To God the judge of all. To the spirits of just men made perfect. To Jesus the mediator of the new covenant. And to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. 
So who are the constituents that comprise this eternal kingdom? And to some extent, we're, I'm going to pull this back into the, to the uh, millennial kingdom as well. Although it's not, it won't be exactly the same, but we can see some interesting things here. First of all, you have an innumerable company of angels. Second of all, you have the general assembly and church of the firstborn. That is simply the church. The general assembly of the church is not the local assembly, but the assembly of all the local assemblies over all of the church age from the, from the Pentecost to the rapture. That's the general assembly of the church. Can, can you imagine? All the true Christian people from all time. Part of this kingdom. To God the judge of all. So he's the third. So you have the angels, you have the church, you have God, the Father, the judge. Then you have the spirits of just men made perfect. I take that to be a reference to the Old Testament tribulation and millennial saints. And then it says to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. So in this kingdom, you're going to have, I don't know what the appearance of angels will be or what their function will be, you know, if we'll be able to see them or what. I don't think so, but it may be there's more active involvement in the kingdom than we see now. But there will definitely be in the millennial kingdom the church, Jesus, and the spirits of just men made perfect. Okay, Those Old Testament and tribulation saints. Now we can prove that beyond a shadow of a doubt. The millennial saints, that's a little question mark because if we're in the millennium, what about them? Well, they're going to be believers in their natural bodies not in the resurrected body. So, we're going to look at the constituents now of this kingdom. We've looked at the structure of the society. Now we're going to look at the constituents or the people involved in the society. The first, of course, we must start with the first, and that is the king. The king. Matthew 25, we already mentioned. He comes and rules on his throne, judging the nations. Um, Isaiah 32, it says, Behold, a king will reign in righteousness and princes will rule with justice. Speaking of this kingdom, his role is obvious. He rules over everything. He is the God-man, the human divine mediatorial ruler standing between God and men who will rule this kingdom, perfectly governing the kingdom under his authority. And he will arrange and order that kingdom The government will be upon His shoulders. And of the increase of that government, there will be no end. And He will arrange and order that. And at the end of the kingdom, we'll hand it up to God the Father and say, here it is. Everything's in order. Everything's how you wanted it to be. It's just here. Perfect. He's the king. He's the first constituent, if you will, of this kingdom. The first person that we should mention. Secondly, you have the resurrected church. And I think they are connected with this phrase, the princes who will rule with justice. My friend, princes don't rule with justice today, generally speaking. Injustice abounds, but that will not be the case in this kingdom. There will not be... I was reading about the decision on the Louisiana abortion clinic or abortion law that said that abortion clinics like every other surgical facility need to have admitting privileges to a local hospital. 
And the Supreme Court struck that law down. Why? Because Chief Justice John Roberts flaked out again and said, it's, the law is constitutional, basically, but we have to respect the principle of stare decisis. Previous precedent has to rule and we have to bow to that previous precedent. In the kingdom of Christ, my friends, previous precedent will have no bearing on what to do. The previous precedent will be God's righteousness. What does God's righteousness demand that we do in any particular decision or case? That will be the new starry decisis. Makes me sick. It's a pathetic excuse for copping out and letting the babies die in Louisiana. Yeah, it is. It is. On anybody who's been involved in a situation like that, whether it be anybody who's passed an abortion law or voted against one that would restrict it. Our brother, I think, is often mentioned about the president in the 1990s, Bill Clinton, who is responsible for some heinous pro-abortion legislation. And I don't know how in the world people can sleep at night when they think of all the blood that is on their hands. They are responsible. Oh, they try to do this like who in the Bible? Pilate. I don't find any fault in the man, but we'll go ahead and kill him anyway. What injustice. The princes will rule with justice, Isaiah 32 says. And the princes will be the vice-regents. They will be co-rulers with Christ. They will be, as Paul says, church saints who will judge the angels, who will judge the world. And even, in fact, the um, disciples. You will sit with me on twelve thrones ruling over, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Do you remember that? portion of Scripture. So the church, by virtue of its union with Christ, brought about by spirit baptism, has this special relationship to Christ. The church is the bride. And I believe this refers to the wedding supper of the Lamb. I mean, it directs us to, to refer to that, at which the, the saints, like the patriarchs, will be privileged to dine there. Unbelievers will not participate in that. And the church will reign with Christ, as will the uh, tribulation saints. Look at this in Revelation 20, verse number 4. There are thrones, there's judgment. This is a governmental setup here. A judicial uh, courtroom kind of thing. I saw souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the Word of God who had not worshipped the beast nor His image and not received the mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived. And they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Reigned with Christ. There's a governmental function, my friends. We've talked about it. These are the ones that will fill that function. They will be doing that work. Well done, good and faithful servant. Have thou authority over ten cities or five or however many because you are a faithful and responsible servant of the Lord God. So the King and the resurrected church. And then you have the resurrected Old Testament saints this uh, appears to be the time in which the resurrected 
well, in which the Old Testament saints finally received the fulfillment of their promises that God gave them as Israelites. Abraham had not received the promises, remember, Hebrews tells us, but he looked forward to that time in which he would. And so, you see passages like Daniel 12, 2 and 3. Many will arise out of the dust of the earth, some to life and some to everlasting shame and contempt. Those who rise to life will shine forth in the kingdom of their Father. Um, John 5.29 says the same thing in essence. There will be a resurrection. And Jesus talks about it all in one group. But it's really two groups because we know Revelation 20 tells us there's a thousand years that separate the two resurrections. The first resurrection and the second one. And so Jesus, when He speaks like that, and Daniel as well, just as, as the prophets do sometimes, combining related incidents into one statement. It doesn't mean that they happen at the same time like so many Christians believe. There's a general single resurrection. No, there's clearly not. There's clearly taught to be at least two resurrections. So you have the resurrected Old Testament saints that will participate in this. Abraham, David, Zerubbabel. You might not have thought of him lately. But God's going to make him a signet ring. Haggai 2.23 in his kingdom. David will rule as a prince over the nations, uh, over the nation of Israel. Look at uh, Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 37.24 David, my servant, shall be king over them. Look, David was a prophet. He predicted that the Messiah would uh, not be left in Sheol. His, his, his body would not see corruption. But David is in his grave until this day, Peter says. And Paul agreed. David was there. He was dead and gone, decomposed as it were in his body. But he will be king over them and they shall all have one shepherd and they shall walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. Moreover, or sorry, verse 25, Then they shall dwell in the land that I have given Jacob my servant where their fa- your fathers dwelt and they shall dwell there, they their children and their children's children forever and my servant David shall be their prince forever. Well, that pretty much tells you the story, doesn't it? If David is dead and he's going to be their prince forever, what does that mean? He has to be made alive. He has to be resurrected and have a physical body and rule over that kingdom. Now, some have said this David here, well, that's the greater David. You know, the the son of, of David, the Messiah. I don't think so. I think he's the prince. This is the real David who's the prince. And the Messiah will be there, but he'll be the king. He'll be the king over everything. Uh, We talked about the resurrected tribulation saints already. They will also be uh, constituents of this kingdom. And then I have two more groups, but I have no more time. Okay, So, I'm going to just mention their names. First of all, you have living Israel will be a part of this kingdom and the living Gentiles. Now, we have to look a little more carefully at what they are, but The kingdom of Christ, the messianic kingdom, will come at the end of the tribulation. And not everybody will die in the tribulation. What are you going to do with those people? Well, they're going to be judged, sheep and goats, uh, rebels in Israel and, and those that are faithful in Israel. And those that are sheep and those that are faithful in Israel will be allowed to enter into the kingdom. So they will be regular old you know, people with bodies like ours that will go into that kingdom and I don't know how many it will be, but obviously it will be vastly smaller than, say, the world population now because after the 
ravages of the tribulation, the human population will go you know, down to very small numbers relative to now. I mean, Huge percentages of people are wiped out, famine, destruction, antichrist, persecution, everything like that. But you do have some who survive. He who perseveres to the end will be saved. He'll, he'll, he survives to the end of the tribulation and they're brought into the kingdom. Now, we'll look at a little bit more detail the next time, but that's basically what that kingdom looks like. It's spiritual and moral and governmental and ecclesiastical and there's uh, physical aspects to it and all of those things. And there's... Christ and the resurrected church and the resurrected uh, tribulation saints and perhaps the angels and the Old Testament saints, everybody there in that place, all united into one grand kingdom. It doesn't, it, it, there, but there are still distinctions. There's the church and there's, there's Jews and there's tribulation saints and Old Testament saints and and you know what? Everybody's going to be perfectly happy in their station, whatever it is. Why? Because they're going to know that God has put them in that place. God has put me here in this place uh, as, a, as a Christian. And a Jewish person will say, God has blessed me in my place as a Jewish person under the, you know, the promises that He gave to Israel. And everybody's going to be happy. And nobody's going to be discriminated against and all this kind of crazy stuff that happens today. It won't be like a caste system, but it will be a societal with different levels and different functions and all kinds of things going on. And uh, it will be a blessing. You wait and see. You'll see. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we look forward to seeing the fulfillment of these great promises in the Bible. And we pray that they will come soon. Lord, we have a world in which things are in a mess. And we pray that the Lord would come and clean up the mess, and uh, carry out the judgment that is required and allow us to live in a perfect society as much as can be in a world where sinners still will reside in the kingdom and then for eternity in the future in that eternal state of perfection. Thank you for these ones who have come tonight to uh, be in the Word and think about the things of God and to answer this question, to sing and and uh, just fellowship. I pray our time of greeting will be enjoyable to us and send us on our way with safety tonight. In Jesus' name, Amen.